Rebel Force Radio presents A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. Prepare to make the jump to light speed. Light speed. Traveling through hyperspacing like dust and crops, boy. A collection of bits, comedy, and favorite moments. Stop that ship! Blast them! So strap yourselves in and prepare for the jump to light speed. You might know him best as the bickering droid C-3PO. Ladies and gentlemen, Anthony Daniels Anthony is on Daniels. the stage. Yes. How you doing, Anthony? I'm doing just great. Of course, welcome to Chicago. Thank you. It's not my first time, but it's the first time the weather's been, you know, brilliant enough to walk around and uh, have a good time. Fall in Chicago is often the best time of year around here. It's the best weather we have, and we take advantage of it as much as we can, because if you live here, I mean, you're from uh, England. Yeah, but I watch ER. I know what the weather does here. You know, they're always out in snowstorms or rain. It's a bit of drama. Right. It's amazing how uh, they can make the snow in Chicago look so realistic as they're filming it in L.A. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, you just destroyed it. I thought it was real in all Just honesty, like Star Wars movies they do shoot a lot of exteriors around here uh-huh. like uh, you'll notice on the uh, Michigan Avenue bridge they have a, a few favorite spots where they like to shoot certain scenes of course these spots are nowhere near an actual hospital. <laughs> well, you know, I've worked a lot on Tatooine, and, and uh, I've never been to Dagobah, but uh, we have the same problems in, in Star Wars, I think. <laughs> you are here for the grand opening of Star Wars, Where Science Meets Imagination, at the Chicago Museum of Science and Industry, running through January 6th. Before I get to my many questions about C-3PO, what can you tell us about this exhibit? It's an exhibit that was created by the Boston Museum of Science, uh, I think a couple of years ago. And I was very lucky to be asked to be involved, uh, partly as myself, partly as C-3PO, writing and filming for uh, elements of the exhibit and for the wonderful, magnificent book that actually accompanies the the whole show. And it's been to a few places in uh, America. And what what the show is about, what the exhibit is about, is it takes the idea of Star Wars, which everybody knows about. Uh, and the kinds of science that's in there, whether it's uh, a harvest speeder or uh, it's why people live underground or it's robots, um, various elements like this. And it says, okay, so this George did this with magic and ILM. How might we do it on Earth? And you get to play. You get to try and make a robot that actually has some kind of function. There's even a pair of robot legs. It sounds a little weird, but uh, it's on a uh, mechanical frame. And you have to get them to walk, you know, one foot and toe and heel and whatever. It's amazingly difficult. I thought, oh, that looks easy. I was like half an hour until I got quite cross with it. And uh, you get to play with little uh, magnet trains and so on. Huge amount of fun with the idea of, of helping people to be interested in science as well as be amused. Also in the exhibit, you've got everything there is real from the movies, whether it's a model that was used to uh, put into the computer or it's Darth Vader's costume or it's one of my costumes, including the puppet one from episode one. And original drawings, artwork, everything's real. And you will have seen them for a few seconds on screen. Now you can stand in front of a, a showcase and just stare. Yes, Get a nice close-up look yeah. at these iconic 
images. Yeah. You can see them in 3D. Walk around them. Mm-hmm. Check them out. Uh, and it sounds like this exhibit is fully interactive. Huge amounts of interactive, which which is kind of important because in a movie, you can only interact with your, your emotions, if you like, um, being pulled along by what you see and what you hear, the music particularly. Here, you can actually stand there and think and consider and and participate. It's, it's hugely interactive. In fact, I get into trouble. I miss meetings because I'm trying to finish playing with something. You know, There's one amazing thing. Uh, there were three or four tables uh, which look uh, completely simple. And you pick up a card which has like a logo on it and you hold it a- above the table. And suddenly in your hand, you're, for instance, holding a moisty farm or a sand crawler and you put it on the table. And gradually on the computer screen, you it's invisible in front of you, but you are actually lifting and putting down and placing and arranging so that it all works as a moisty farm. I have no idea how it works. It's really good. <laughs> Wow, that sounds fantastic. I can't wait to check it out. It's at the Chicago Museum of Science and Industry running through January 6th. Now, let's talk about C-3PO. Yeah, because he hates to be left out for too long. One of the most, and I always use this when I talk about Star Wars, iconic, Mm -hmm. iconic character. And from the saga, probably one of the most iconic characters. Well, he's a a figure that you instantly recognize. And it's a figure that kind of haunts me around the world, just as the music does. And, you know, even this morning, uh, you know, lying in bed, I I flick on the uh, HBO and and there's episode three. and And yesterday it was episode two. I mean, is it... Is there something I don't know about? Is it just in my room or what? Um, and it has followed me around the world literally in some, some form or another. Because the appeal is so worldwide yeah. and universal. Yes. And it's that kind of connection that must just be rewarding to you. It is, and especially as, as we speak, the 30th year of Star Wars has shown me in huge numbers, because I've been at some very, very large events, uh, the collective affection that goes towards these movies. Yes. And it's grand to be a part of it. And you've been a part of it for 30 years. You're one of the few people who has actually been on board the Star Wars saga from the beginning. I'm the only person to be in all six movies, which, yeah. given that I didn't want to be in the first one, is, is kind of odd. But literally, I'm the only actor to be involved. Well, let's talk about how you got involved and what did the role of the art of Ralph McQuarrie have to do with you deciding to become C-3PO? One of the things I like in the, in the exhibition here at the museum is that there is part of uh, Ralph McQuarrie's painting uh, enlarged by the side of the showcase that has 3PO and R2-D2 in it. And uh, there was, I didn't, every, people know, I think a lot of fans know that I, I wasn't particularly keen on science fiction. I certainly didn't want to be in a low budget sci-fi movie in, you know, in, a, in a robot suit. And my agent made me go and meet who, basically an unknown American in England at that time. Uh, and there was George, very quiet, very kind of reserved, silent. Uh, but there was Ralph McQuarrie's painting on the wall. And somehow the face of the character in the painting spoke to me, just looked at me and pulled me towards him and sort of, I don't know, I can't explain it. I should, after all these uh, years, have a sort of very simple, uh, neat phrase. To, but I don't, because... I am still confused as to why it worked. And then reading the script, the only character I really liked was this kind of oddball person who, who was very unhappy all the time. And, uh, you know, a lot of us spend our lives out of our, our natural uh, habitat or we're, we're a little uncomfortable, whether it, I don't know, it's in our job or the way we commute or whatever. Uh, and 3PO sort of epitomizes a fish out of water at all times. Yes. And then, you know, th- the next day I went back and said to George, after another hour together, you know, kind of ran out of th- things to say. I said, can I play the part? And he said, sure. 
And, then, and, then we, and the next day is when all the horror started because the next day I was at Elstree Studios being slapped all over with wet plaster to make a, a model of my body. Wow. Uh, and until you've seen yourself standing there in every detail uh, with no clothes on in white plaster, you, you don't realize how unappealing the human body can look. I can only imagine. Uh, don't imagine too much. <laughs> what was it like to work with George Lucas? Um, he he's well known for being slightly uh, remote as a director. So, you know, he's got the whole thing. I think as as far I can't think of another director who has to have so much in his imagination because so much is added. Even then, is added after after the fact. So all the time he's trying to knit what he's seeing on the screen with what he knows ILM will do and can do and need to do. Uh, so he doesn't always have time to explain things to the people actually standing there. So I, I you know, not taking anything away or giving myself anything. I, I got into the habit of kind of working it out for myself, how to do things. And it was a bit like being a grown-up uh, infant because in that costume I had to work out how to pick something up, how to see something without uh, being able to see it before I looked at it. You know, we all work on about 175, 180 degrees of peripheral vision. You, looking straight forward, you can see either side. With him, I'm like a horse with blinkers, and I'd better know where the object I need to look at is because I don't have time to... It would be a complete... It would like be a, playing a blind man if, if I didn't work it out in advance. Since you've been working with George for so long and you returned for the prequels, did you find that maybe he could just sort of very simply in very few words tell you what he was looking for and you knew yes, because was, of the experience. It was the way he said, uh, stand there. <laughs> that, that's the, the extent of his direction? Yes. Stand there. Yes, or, or just a little over to the right. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> but well, I would have these uh, marks. My, you know, In a movie, I don't know if people know, but you, you generally find out where to stand because there's a thing on the floor and it can be a tiny bit of blue tape or something. Or it can be, in my case, a sandbag. Or <clears throat> latterly, they gave me these wonderful uh, T-shaped things. You put your, your your feet either side of the, the central bit. And mine were gold. They're bright, shiny gold tape uh, marks. And a really nice souvenir there. And uh, you just – and you work out. You, you sort of back up. And then one, two, three, four. And you're, you should be on your mark. Because it's very important how things are lined up in a movie. So, you know, he was worried about blue screen and, uh, you know, what Padme looked like or whatever. Because you see the face, you see the hair and the makeup. So you mentioned the mark was a nice souvenir. Is this something you took from the set with you? <gasps> oh, dear. Anyway. Um, <laughs> well, you know, it's nice to have the odd souvenir, isn't it? Right. Yeah. And, is and there... they were my marks. Nobody else was going to – nobody else was gold on the set. So. Exactly. <laughs> and is there anything else, uh, a set piece or prop that might be uh, in a drawer at your very house? Na- yeah, probably in a cupboard. Mm. Yeah. You want to reveal what it is? Not at this moment. Okay. It's small enough to fit in a cupboard, though. Perhaps when I leave the country. <laughs> I do actually have well, two, two, and I've never done anything with it, uh, six fragments of the Millennium Falcon, the last ones on the planet. Because one day I was walking on the back lot at Elstree Street trying to calm down. And uh, it was a very uh, kind of drizzly day, I remember. And there was this bonfire, smelly. Uh, you wouldn't be allowed to do it now. And... They were burning the Millennium Falcon. Oh, my God. I was 
I was genuinely shocked. I'm still shocked. And I sort of questioned him about it. The interior was made of steel, and that went back to, uh, uh, got melted down for scrap. But the exterior was all uh, plywood and, and bits of plastic and stuff. And they were literally burning it. And because they explained, you know, you can't store this stuff. It was so huge. Right. Uh, it would cost a fortune to store it. And uh, you had to get rid of it. And I picked up a few bits of sort of plastic and stuff because it, I don't know, I felt somebody should have something. You know, it shouldn't just disappear. Right. It shouldn't just exist. Uh, in fact, you can see the model of it, which was used in the trick shots and the ILM stuff in in the uh, Science and uh, Imagination exhibit. A beautiful, beautiful, beautiful model in such detail. In fact, you get it's, – it's in quite a small showcase so that you can actually – put your nose on it and, and gaze at the detail that's there, created by the ILM modelers. Uh, the big version, you know, had it all big size. But the reason the model shots work model shots work so well is that the camera can get right in there, right up close, and there is the detail there. So, yes, they're, they're, I don't know where those bits are, actually. Mm. Uh, it's upstairs somewhere. Because if you came to my home, it sounds weird, but there isn't a single Star Wars art- artifact on show. Either. Really? Yeah. Now, that surprises me because Star Wars collecting has become such a huge hobby. I was yeah. going to ask you, do yeah. you have any 3PO memorabilia or collectibles? Yes, I do. Uh, yeah, um, quite a lot, but they're not on the show. I mean, I, I don't know. It would be a bit like uh, people who know what I do know what I do. They don't need to you know, have a thrust in their face at all right. times. And people who don't know don't need to know. Mm-hmm. Um, my home's slightly more sort of, I don't know, um, antique-orientated, I suppose. There you go. Do you live in an old house? Uh, yes, I do live in an old house. I live in two old houses, um, uh, one in France, one in England. And uh, the English one's about, uh, as we speak, about 200 years old. What's the oddest C-3PO collectible you've ever seen? Well, the, the one that really gives me uh, is uh, a scotch tape dispenser, which is made of um, ceramic, and it's white and uh, yellowy color. And it is 3PO lying somewhat prone with his knees in the air, lying back on his elbows. <laughs> oh, okay. With his legs apart and stuffed between his thighs. This is a roll of scotch tape. And I did say, well, are you going to make a toilet paper dispenser <laughs> this, uh, you know, in the reverse position? Uh, I just thought it was so tacky. And in fact, for a while, it was the one thing on my desk. Uh, oh, and then I just, I, I, I th- the joke had got old. Well, I've developed some um, imagery in my head that's very disturbing. So we'll Absolutely. just and, and it was made by a company called Taste Setters, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> but I am amazed that people collect so much stuff and they, I don't know, I don't it can be a little it. over the top, right? It can be. I'm a little disturbed when I go into... I was going around a show house uh, with a friend who was wanting to buy some, well, a home for sale. And I was very disturbed to see there was a lightsaber in the sitting room. I said, I don't think you need to buy this house. Weird people. So uh, I don't know why you would want a lightsaber. Well, they're, they're one of they now work very well. They, zoom, they do all the noises and stuff. Yes, it's a I think far I just cry. missed. Yeah, three PO never got a lightsaber, so I think uh, he's a little jealous. Again, something that would be probably difficult for you to hold on to. Is it true that when you had to use a prop, they would tape it or tie it on to you? Yeah, that's absolutely yeah. right. Uh, holding things was difficult. The, the first thing I probably ever picked up was the little uh, communication device, little white uh, transmitter that was lying on a, a surface and uh, 3PO very neatly picks it up and, uh, uh, you know, it starts communicating with Luke Skywalker. And, uh, of course, it was there and then we go into a close-up and I just had the arm on, moved it into shot, plonked my hand down on top of the thing because you can't see but in the palm of my hand is some double back sticky tape mm-hmm. and it's, I just sort of clomped onto it and then 
put my fingers around it. Uh, and then in the long shot, yes, it is taped. The biggest thing they taped onto me was a scene in I think episode two, was it, where 3PO gets his head blown off. And for the first time, I got a blaster because 3PO has always secretly had a desire to have a blaster in his hands. And we did actually have to wire that in because I couldn't grip uh, the mm. whole thing. That was a really, really fun thing to, uh, to shoot, to pretend to be like... Yeah. I won't tell you the line I said. The line you hear is, die, Jedi doll. Yes. I said some... 3PO got very, very naughty in that scene and said some very bad words. Um, I won't even tell you what they started with. Um, but the crew just collapsed in laughter because they'd never heard 3PO use um, bad language before. <laughs> but, you know, 3PO's got a lot of uh, pent-up tension there, and that's one reason people use... Uh, you know, I picked up on it. I picked up... <laughs> Why is that? Something in the performance? You know, well, 3PO seems to be very wound up. Oh, totally. Know, He's time. in the wrong place. He's protocol and etiquette. The first thing he hears from his little potential droid friend is uh, his parts are showing. He's naked. You know, thank, thanks, R2. That's really... I needed to know that. So he spends, you know, the first... 20 years of the movie stark naked in front of people when he's been trying to be the head waiter. Imagine walking into a restaurant and find that finding the head waiter is no clothes on, you know. How would he feel? How would you feel? Anyway, where are we going tonight for dinner? I forget. <laughs> um, so 3PO is, is, you know, a little traumatized by that. Protocol and etiquette are not things that are generally apparent in George's universes, if you, if you, if you think back. He has people running around blasting this, that, and that, and you know, being generally discourteous to 3PO. So he's unappreciated. Right. You really pick up on that with the relationship between 3PO and R2. And to me, it was not just the character of C-3PO you brought to life, but you also brought to life the character of R2 because of the way the interaction was there. Thank you for saying that. I don't think, I don't think most people realize that R2 is, is like working with a cereal packet, a box, you know, just there is nothing coming back. There's no sounds, no words, nothing. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I'm just heading off. I, I am a, a tutor, if you like, a visiting scholar at Carnegie Mellon University. And next week I'll be uh, working with uh, students and, and they've asked me suddenly to take an improv class. And uh, Jan Crocker, who created the Science and Star Wars exhibit at Boston, uh, has, you know, has all sorts of arts background. She said, well, you want a subject for improv? You were improvising with 3PO all the time, with R2-D2 all the time. And I thought, yes, I was, wasn't I? Yes, and it drove me nuts. Uh, in the end, after six movies, you get used to it. Although in the last movie, you know, usually R2 wasn't there at all. It was just... And in fact, this morning on TV, I watched a scene and... I convinced myself watching that R2 was there. And, of course, he wasn't. He was digitally uh, put on later on by ILM. And I was quite amused to see that it really does work, thanks to ILM. But, thank you, yes, I was creating two characters. An incident when this really became apparent to me was I was in the attendance at Star Wars Celebration 2. You were hosting a panel with Don Bees, and R2 was on stage. And you were taking questions from the crowd. Oh, wow, yes. For R2. And you brought so much life to R2 that sitting there in the audience, I was, I believed you were actually translating for the audience what he was saying. And as a matter of fact, I actually asked the question. I asked, oh. what was it like being upstaged by Luke <laughs> Skywalker in the films? And uh, I actually have a clip of that if you'd like to hear it. You asked R2 what it was like being upstaged? Yes, I'll play it for you right now. Here it is. 
R2, tell me, are you upset that George Lucas based the Star Wars movies on the character of Luke Skywalker and not a great as yourself? Sorry, he didn't quite understand the question. Can you repeat it? The movie Star Wars. More Luke Skywalker, not as much R2. Don't you think the... Yeah, no, he's, he's kind of upset by that, as, as many people are. What do you mean I had more lines than you? Of course I did. No, but people understand me, R2. Oh, Arthur. Well, wh- where, where are you going? Well, what makes you think there's a settlement over there? Have you got a hangover, R2? Because you seem a little um, queasy today. There you have now, it. That, that is, you've really made me smile there. I've never heard that before. That, now, that was genuine improvisation. And the difference is, there I was on stage, and I just had this idea, why not make my life even more dangerous? And so uh, they had on the soundboard uh, a series of R2 sounds, and somebody was uh, hitting a, a button like on a um, keyboard. And I had no idea. So I asked a question. I got an audience member to ask a question. And then they would make random sounds on R2's uh, trick, uh, whatever. And I would have to think the answer to the question and what was the sound, because they were totally random. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what they were going to come up with. Uh, and then make a, a reply. And uh, that was real improvisation, what you Absolutely. just heard. So can I do this at Carnegie Mellon? I don't know. Is R2 there? I don't know. But well, the difference was, on stage, we did put his sounds in live, whereas in reality, of course, they were put on months later by Ben Burt. Mm-hmm. And the other day, uh, I was in uh, Skywalker Ranch in his office and uh, there was the original keyboard that uh, he'd made the the whistles and beeps on but then of course the reason that you you partly believe in R2 is the humanity that Don uh, that um, uh, Ben Burt brings with his own voice going Mm-hmm. Or, you know, whistling or whatever. And then I think he had his, his little baby girl make some uh, sort of infant sounds. And they give you a sense of sort of uh, uh, humanity of uh, carbon-based, um, you know, as opposed to silicon-based metal and, and whatever. Maybe, does, does metal have carbon in I don't know. But <laughs> there, is, there is an animal humanity in R2. And, of course, very carefully with the, the editing, too. Yeah, it was always the most amazing sound and also among the first that Ben actually created for the film. Of course, Ben Burt, me being an audio guy, he is, you know, legendary status as yeah. far as I'm concerned. And what, what I always liked about R2 is how he brought organic and mechanical yeah. and somehow... Yeah. Just made it, you know, bond together. And, and, and that was Ben who did that, because who else would have thought of putting in human sounds? Um, you know, most robots of that type would have just a beeps and all that kind of thing. The other amusing thing is that Ben also created, every time 3PO moves, and I don't know if you watch this, mm-hmm. uh, he moves his neck, he yes. moves his head, or he moves an arm, or he, he walks, and some poor uh, person in, in Ben's department has to sit there watching every frame to see when I move and, and put it on. It gives a great sense of reality. On the set, the reality is it's sort of, uh, you know, clomp, clomp, clomp. And if somebody, everybody's voice is replaced. Uh, right. Every sound is, is put on specially by Ben. And I just saw episode, or whatever it is, where he, uh, episode two, I think, where he throws some um, acoustic bombs. And there Ben does a remarkable thing, terribly brave. And in fact, it worried studio uh, managers because just before the bomb, the sound drops out for just about a second. 
total silence. Yes. Which the the magic of that is it gives a greater impact to the the sound that follows because you have this sort of sucked in feeling that it's sucked all the sound out of the world and then boom. And uh, a lot of theatres didn't realise that was an intentional thing. They thought there was a you know, stupid people uh, gap in the tape. Yeah, well, it was. Uh, so Ben was genius. a magic, magic person. You know, he came up with Darth Vader's breathing, the lightsabers, mm. every sound, every acoustic, every interior is Ben. And you mentioned the the gears of three PO moving yeah. around. Was yeah, servo motors. Servo and then, motors. Exactly. And then we had hysterical time together making the Ewok. Uh, we had such fun with that. We we wrote down, listened to tapes, and wrote down all sorts of silly words, mm-hmm. and then put them in a different order. And uh, uh, we had to throw one or two out because they suddenly started sounding obscene. Yes, <laughs> I can imagine. I wanted to keep them, but he said, "No, it's a children's movie." And you love Ewoks, of course. Adore them. Yes. Absolutely. Any any rumors to the contrary? Absolutely untrue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't. I, I you know for some reason I just don't feel convinced about that. I just. Uh, well, how can I put it? I, I love it. I, I, no, it's difficult, isn't it? Believe, believe. I love it. I, no, it doesn't work. No, you're right. Uh, I found them. Okay. A, I found them a little intense. Kind of things that are persistently sort of knee high are. Mm, they can get on your nerves after a while. You don't like it warm and fuzzy, do you? <laughs> <laughs> Did you do any of your own stunts dressed in the 3PO outfit? Yes, I uh, <laughs> very stupidly. Um, I, w- uh, I wanted to do the original one where 3PO falls backwards as the sand person hits uh, Luke Skywalker. And they said, no, you can't because you're the only person, you know, you, you're the only you, we're out in the desert and you're you and we haven't got another you. Right. So I think it was Joe who was in the props department who was uh, quite small also and sort of vaguely was wearing the costume and fell backwards um, about, I suppose, 70 degrees onto a mattress. Mm-hmm. And I did think and I said, well, I could have done that. Uh, no, no big deal. It was a fall backwards onto, uh, you know, cushions. Uh, so later on, there's a scene in the Millennium Falcon with 3PO walking towards cameras. as they're being attacked by TIE fighters, I think. And yeah, they said, well, you want to do a stunt? And so I had, you can't tell, but around my waist is a, uh, a belt and attached very firmly to the belt is a, a wire hoop and a, and a wire, which was actually running along the side of the floor. And that got gathered up as I walked forward between me and the camera at a certain point was the explosion. And the wire went through a hole in the Millennium Falcon wall. And behind that, on pulleys and things to make it, you know, big deal, was two stunt people, big big guys. And at the explosion, they, they pulled really hard. And uh, quite forcibly, I smacked into the wall. I mean, with quite a lot of force. And, uh, you know, they, they stopped filming and ran to, towards me. But, you know, the costume was fine. And you... Inside? Oh, oh, I don't think they worried about that. No. (laughs) Just the costume. Okay. As long as the costume's okay. Absolutely. It was a very, very expensive costume. And it was always going wrong. Bits used to fall off all the time. The famous scene where I interrupt Han Solo kissing uh, Princess Leia. So many names in these movies. Um, You know, putting my right arm up. Uh, Sir, Mm -hmm. at that moment, I heard something clank onto the floor. And, oh, God, we have to do this again. You know, reshooting scenes is is tiresome. And... um, uh, what I hadn't realized, of course, you don't use the sound at all, so you wouldn't hear the clank. But I, what fell off was a little arm greebly, a greebly as we know. No, you work out what a greebly is. <laughs> it was a word we made up. Uh, but a greebly fell on 
the floor and it, it was small enough that you only see it um, if you go frame by frame by frame you will see the, from the middle of my arm uh, a goldy thing sort of dropping off uh, so from then on I think I let uh, uh, people do stunts uh, for me and, and of course mostly now they're done on computer um, stunt people are very oh a famous stunt is uh, falling off Jabba's barge um, where I went right up to the edge and you know we're 60 foot up in the air there on, on the out in Yuma and I stood there with you know my arms I was going ah, and cut and and what was dangerous was R2 <laughs> you know Dumbies is wonderful but um, I had one eye out so I couldn't really see that well there had to be the open space because you needed the break and the, the barrier there to fall over and R2 is, is usually fair even with Don he can have his off moments and I really didn't want to fall over this thing and then I went away and uh, Tracy, the uh, stunt double, um, was dressed up in a rubber costume uh, like mine. And I showed her how I'd been standing and she copied that. And on action, she fell forward and reversed and, and fell onto uh, a pile of mattresses and, and cardboard boxes. Then, of course, she came back up again, got, got dressed up in uh, Carrie Fisher's truss, uh, whatever that costume was, a slave girl thing. Um, and and swung across onto the bar onto the little skiff as Carrie Fisher. So you know, I hope she was making a lot of money there. Wow! Yeah, uh, talented girl, three PO and and, uh, and uh, the princess in one day. Multitasking. Mm. Now you talk about working in Yuma in the mm. desert there. That couldn't nearly have been the experience of working in Tunisia. Now um, the good At least and bad. You could drink the water in, uh, in in Yuma. I think it's probably the only good thing. You could. I'm sorry, Yuma's. I'm sure it's changed now. I'm sure it's become the mecca of um, the, the film industry. Uh, you know, they're probably running tours to this is the place where Jabba's barge was. Mm-hmm. But as a place to stay, the Stardust Motel isn't isn't high on my must-return list. No, huh? and you know, I'm not big on on fast food, uh, hot dogs, burgers, ugh, stuff. And you have to fit into the. And I had to fit cost. into the the thing. Yeah, uh, the, the desert was. Just beautiful, and actually as beautiful as the Sahara in many ways. You know, getting out there early in the morning with the low sun, catching those rippling um, coruscations in in the the sand was magic. Uh, slightly blown by the fact that you know the the hill next to the set was covered in bikers who used it permanently, so mm-hmm. they'd be roaring up and down all the time. That was a bit. Well, I didn't mind. It gave us something to watch. You know, filming can be a little boring after a while. You mm-hmm. kind of run, a, run out of things to eat, to read, to want to listen to. You just think, I just don't want to work and go home. Right. And there's a lot of sitting around time. A lot of sitting around. The trick is to be ready when, you know, I used to complain on the first film. Well, finally, I complained saying, how come I get here, you know, eight o'clock in the morning and we start doing my scenes at, you know, five o'clock in the afternoon. I'm sitting around this. Well, yes. Um yeah, you know, um, well, the reason is, uh, well, you know, Carrie and Mark get to look a bit tired by the end of the day. Um, so it's better we shoot them in the morning when they look fresh and everything. I say, well, you know what, I'm, I'm kind of tired by the end of the day. Yeah, but nobody can see you. Oh, thank you. And then they say, well, actually, you know, what we call the sunset, uh, the golden hour, the hour just before sunset, very beautiful golden light, your costume just looks beautiful. Mm-hmm. That's the way they're BSing me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I've actually learned about the golden hour. And if you look tonight, uh, I'm sure there'll be a lovely sunset. You just look how the light, uh, mainly because of pollution, obviously, uh, just looks beautiful. Everything looks nice at that time. So I shut up. And you just have to learn to garner your, your energy during the day. 
And from that desert to the desert in Tunisia, did you return to the site of the Lars homestead oh, yes. for episode two? Y- yes, indeed. And that was so strange because uh, George and I were the only people on that film who'd ever been to that location before. Mm-hmm. The hole in the ground where Luke stands with one leg up and he calls down to Aunt Beru, the original hole, which has nothing in it, because uh, the, uh, the hole, the inside of the hole is actually about 50 miles away in Matmata. Uh, that was still there, so they could orientate the rest of the set that had been there originally to the uh, to that hole, and it was an extraordinary uh, time lapse. It was like time travel. I stood, knowing I'd stood on this sand before, not the same grains we assume. Hard to tell. Didn't count them. Didn't mark any of them. Uh, and I said to George, "You know, this is this is." It, I it turned my soul over a little to be followed shortly after or on another movie, I can't remember, uh, where he and I again walked into the white corridor of the Tonti Four yes. for the last movie. Episode and, three. And again, he and I were the only people who'd been in that. Nobody else there. They'd only seen it on movies and had rebuilt it from, from what they'd seen. And again, it was eerily the same. And yet there I was, you know, 25 years older and... Uh, 25 years, I was going to say more grown up, but I don't quite mean that. Uh, more mature. No, I don't even mean that. <laughs> older, older, yeah. There you go. So that was a bit of a... Few people get to do that, um, have that experience. It's, I suppose, almost like returning to you know your school again or something. But because Star Wars has been such a huge part of not only my life, but the world's life, some of these iconic moments, if you like, do take on a, a huge dynamic. Yes. And when you were making the trek out to that set in uh, Tunisia, in the middle of the desert, mm. for the prequels, were you saying to yourself, I can't believe I'm doing this again? Didn't it just seem like a, a once... A once-in-a-lifetime experience. Uh, <laughs> it's I, not R2. No, I told him I was busy. Uh, he'll probably call back. But, I mean, did you say to yourself, I, I can't believe here, we're, here we go again, 30 years later? I think the phrase, here we go, yes, here we go again. Isn't that in the movie I say it? Return of the one, Jedi. One of my lines. Return of the Jedi. <laughs> here we go again. Yeah. That terrible doomed quality. At least they'd improved the accommodation in... in uh, Tunisia. But what was scary was that in the original film, uh, the little domed home, you could not stand down there. It was full of water because the water table was only about three feet, four feet below the surface. Now, uh, with the growth in uh, hotel and the use of water resources and uh, uh, sewerage and all that kind of thing, uh, we could... Artu. Later. Uh, You could actually... we, We stood down there. There was about a Six, uh, six foot, seven foot uh, ability. And it showed me just what water management, you know, how water levels are falling because of what we're doing. And mm-hmm. you should have seen the mound of water bottles, which they did recycle. But we all, we all carried, we, most of us had special, you know, hip containers because you needed to hydrate. Yes. And actually, it's the one time that I did completely get, um, what do you call it, when you get really hot? Uh, cross is one word. Um, I got heat heat stroke Ooh. because I was in in that hole in the ground, and it was hot outside. It was hotter inside, and hotter inside my costume. And Don Bees was talking to me, and I could hear him talking to me, and I could hear words. I didn't understand them, you know. And he doesn't have a speech defect. Uh, and I said, I, I, you know. And he he took the head off, and uh, you know, I cooled down, whatever. Very frightening. Hmm. Well, you know, I'm going to take a drink of water right now. Just hearing that. 
very Being important to yeah. hydrate yourself yeah. in the desert or not. Um, what about working with Alec Guinness? Ah, favorite. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, we talked about George being in charge of the whole movie, and that means he doesn't always have time to talk to individuals about the details. You know, you, he hires people to do their job, you know. He d- otherwise, he'd do it himself, and he doesn't have time. So Alec sort of, in my mind at least, slightly took over being my mentor and uh, my encourager and uh, my support, if you like. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have lots of very nice memories about him. And occasionally I would go and stay with him and his wife, Merrilla. Who, uh, oh yeah, she was out there on the first film. She was sketching. She had a she had an experience. She came back to that. Some guard had come up, some like deranged policeman, had tried to arrest her in the middle of nowhere for sketching a temple, um, ah. which you're not allowed to do apparently. Yes, um, but he got awfully carried away, and so she gave him the picture, mm-hmm. which means sketching. And because she was a very very bright, intelligent woman, she failed to show him the rest of the book, which was filled with pictures of temples. I'll bet. <laughs> so she was, she was fine, yeah. Uh, he, was, he was wonderful to me and, um, you know, obviously a great sort of uh, thing, person to have in the movie. Again, yes. Kind of, uh, and did, uh, maybe that's why everybody else could cope with all the silliness of, of talking about hyperdrives and stuff, because he said it with, with you know, great reality. So mm-hmm. he kind of followed his example. Well, it kind of tests your mettle as an actor when you're saying things that you really don't know what you're saying. Yes, a lot, of, a lot of actors do that in, in ordinary films. They um, actors don't always know what they're talking about. They just I pretend. It. I believe it. Now, let's fast forward to the future. Uh, you're still involved with Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, you're involved with the upcoming Clone Wars show. What can you tell us about that? Well, I got into um, – I got my knuckles wrapped the other day by putting on my website uh, that I just uh, – on my little greetings page that I just said I've just done episode five of Clone Wars called, you know um, – I don't know, Knuckles in Space or something. And immediately from Lucasfilm, take the name off the website. It's mm. like, and I, I have to say, <laughs> why? It's like, you know, who cares? It's, you know, they're, they've always been very concerned with how they reveal things and keeping things quiet. It gets quiet. a little tiresome sometimes. Yeah, it frankly. does. It does, you know, as a fan, it gets tiresome. Yes, it's, it's faintly insulting. Uh you know, certainly they have a product that they do and need to maintain and uh, uh, keep the standard up. But sometimes they can get a bit hysterical and overprecious, and you know, maybe their fan site wanted to, you know, name it first. Right. Please. Right. That's always the the big fear. Now, have you seen any footage of the show? Very, very brief, because you have to imagine. Um, I am uh, recording them in London. Uh, me and an engineer, mm-hmm. and uh, just as when I was recording um, the Museum of Science and Industry's uh, phone uh, message on hold, if you ring up to book seats or mm-hmm. tickets rather for the uh, Science and Imagination exhibit, you get about uh, five or six minutes, if not more, of three PO explaining. Uh, first of all, that there isn't a human there at the moment, but, you know, hang on, etc. How you can book tickets. And then R2 gets uh, irritable and uh, bored and wanders off around the museum and stuff. And uh, so I'm recording that in, in London and everybody is in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And the engineer said to me sort of privately off air, how come, you know, there's five of them and just two of us? And that's the way it is with the cartoons, that, uh, you know, there's a whole production team over there talking to me through my headset mm-hmm. and giving me direction, which is very, very useful. One needs direction. And, of course, I do it about, like, four in the afternoon when it's, like, almost 
I don't know, eight in the morning there. So at least I get my own back that way. Man, you're up. You're ready to go. Now, well, yeah, and, I, and I'm really enjoying them, actually. Mm-hmm. It's fun. And I'm, you know, the big secret is I shouldn't reveal, but I don't actually wear the costume in the studio. Oh, there it's you a lot go. Easier. Well, I'll tell you, if you're ever in Chicago and they need you to record some lines, you know which studio to come to. I'll Indeed, take care of you. Yeah. No problem. Now, uh, everyone's looking forward to it. There's also another Star Wars TV series on the horizon down the line a little bit. It's a live action show. Have you been contacted about being involved in that or anything? Pretty much everything. It is quite a way in the future and uh, everything on that is sort of under wraps. You know, right. there's only so uh, rude I can get about the whole... Um, uh, secrecy thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there there is there is uh, plenty of stuff in in the pipeline because there is a huge adoration of the shows. You know, this thirtieth year. I don't know if people listening were in in London or in uh, in Los Angeles, but I think they will have got a huge collective feeling about how people feel about Star Wars. And, you know, there there's like anything good, bad, and indifferent. Uh, you know, it's up to you to choose what you like. Some people choose everything. That's faintly indiscriminate, but, uh, you know, I, I like people to be um, thoughtful and selective. You know, you don't have to like it all. But mm-hmm. no, ta- somebody likes something, that's good. You're talking about Star Wars fans. Um, your relationship with Star Wars fans is pretty solid. You've been known to go out at Star Wars Celebration and work the lines. People wait and they'll get in line to see mm-hmm. it and they'll turn around and Anthony Daniels is tapping them on the shoulder. We've heard these stories over and over and over again. How is that relationship with the fans? This year I have done quite a number of, well, a few appearances and I don't normally do very many. Um, I, I slightly worry that it one risks trivializing the sort of the largeness of Star Wars by sort of turning up at a church hall every weekend to sign endless autographs. So it's not my thing. Um, the idea, I, I find standing in line so appalling that I feel sorry for people who, or I feel, not sorry, but I, I feel an empathy with people who are standing there for three hours. And if there's anything I can do to uh, alleviate that, you know, m- my big problem is airports and, and that kind of line at the moment. So I, I do kind of guess how they're feeling and also i i quite like breaking the barrier between the screen and and the audience and saying well i'm a real person and you're a real person and you know providing you're not too weird or don't smell too bad uh you know let's talk for a minute and i like playing tricks on people and joking and all that kind of yes because 3po is you know very uptight very correct uh, I'm slightly less less so. So it's the naughty side to me that comes. That's nice. And uh, how was Celebration 4 in L.A. for you? Uh, that's a tricky one because I, um, I, just w- I just was standing there for so long. Uh, every time I looked up, the lines seemed to get longer. Mm-hmm. And sort of that's all I did. I did actually go to bed for two days afterwards. And I found it a very intense experience, maybe too intense, but I found, you know, practically all of the people, there weren't one or two people who were inappropriate, but that's always when you have that many thousand people, there'll always be one or two, you know, people who really shouldn't be let out. Of course. Uh, And the sad thing is that lets down the other fans. Uh, But I'll admit something that uh, to begin with, um, you know, the first person came out and said, you know, Mr. Daniels, you've, you've really change my, you know, my childhood and all that kind of thing. And I was saying that's very nice and all that kind of thing. You know, the, the 20th person that says, he's, uh, Mr. Dan, you can, yeah, 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 thanks. I, yeah, great. And then uh, something in my brain said, you know, that was so wrong and rude because I have wanted to say to people that I've met that are famous or have done something that I admire. You know, 
I, I, I want to tell you how much I appreciate it. And it's necessary. I think you have to have this sort of stroke, stroke thing to make a complete picture and entity. And uh, it's very nice to be told. British people are notorious for not accepting compliments. They say, no, no, not at all. It was, it, it was nothing. It didn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. That's a bad habit. But it is very British. But I'm trying to break it. So if you'd like to pay me a compliment, compliment now. Well, I'll tell you right now. I uh, saw Star Wars the first time when I was eight years old. It was 1977. My dad took me to the movie theater. We got there late. The scene we arrived in was when 3PO was being lowered into the oil bath. That's my day. It feels so good. <laughs> yes. What can you tell us about that scene? What, what do you remember about shooting that scene? <laughs> I remember very clearly. It was a very cold day in London and in Elstree, just north of London. And um, yes, I was a little nervous of the, of the device that lured me into the water. It was a little uh, lift. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd seen one or two of the effects go slightly wrong. So I was a little nervous that there I was, you know, about to be deluged into a, a pit of vegetable oil. I had got them to warm the vegetable oil. Okay. Done. Not by, well, you could see it steaming, couldn't you? If you think back to that steam. Sure. Yeah. yeah. That was actually two electric kettles behind me, behind the scenery. It had nothing to do with the contents of the ah. oil. Um, High tech. Uh, very. And you see, <laughs> I love that kind of um, trickery because you could do that at home. Mm-hmm. If you do it at home, boys and girls, be very careful. Boiling water can be hot. <laughs> That's why they say it's boiling. Yeah, but it's the sort of rubbish you get on a cup of coffee now. This co- if it's not hot, I'm taking it back. Is that the only time that 3PO was submerged with you in the costume? I think it's the only time he's submerged totally. At all. Yeah. And uh, yes. Um, yeah, that's the only time. And did that cause a, a problem with the way the costume fit? Oh, totally. It fell apart because a lot of it was held together with kind of sticky tape, uh, either gold or just sticky. And the oil uh, actually removed the stickiness. And if you look carefully, the left leg has absolutely fallen. It's about to totally fall off. It just slid down, you know. Um, you, it's kind of dark and it goes by in a flash. But in a still, you can see it, you know, because the costume was kind of a little homemade. Well, you're giving me some freeze frame moments here with these movies. I, I've seen, I've seen each one of them a hundred okay, times. Okay, you want to freeze frame? Go, go a couple of shots forward. And I got, I got an email to the website the other day, which I haven't yet had time to answer. Like when, when Artu uh, pops out a picture of Carrie Fisher, you, you seem to fall off. Yes. Onto the floor. Um, George said, um, oh, "I need you kind of on the f- floor." So I. It would be very difficult to step off. Mm-hmm. So you know, I said, "Well, I'll just pop off," and I and I did. That's why I'm down there to um, to be on the same. So I'd be in the same relationship with R2 and a close right. up. Right. Uh, but if you want to freeze frame, you just watch what three PO does with the towel. I say no more. <laughs> okay. You know, Luke Skywalker gives him the towel to dry himself with, and I wasn't quite clear where I was drying. <laughs> I got you. Okay, another freeze frame moment. That's three of them. And I haven't even heard of any of these before. Have you seen, uh, do you see Star Wars parodies? And have you seen the new Family Guy Star Wars episode? No. No. Okay. They'll probably be running, rerunning it a lot. But the reason I asked you is because I thought a little bit, a lot of the humor was lowbrow. And I just was wondering if you felt it would be, if that's appropriate to have like sort of scatological humor in the Star Wars universe. My, my sense of humor is entirely lowbrow, entirely scatological. So I, I think I should get a tape of this program. <laughs> uh, you know, the um, Disney, I will tell you, I, I, they persuaded me to do a Star Wars weekend. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, I actually had fun. Um, but at one time, I used the word uh, oh, such bullshit or something. Well, oh, my God. Mickey Mouse had to have his ears syringed. Oh, the drama. Um, if you uh, occasionally uh, y- using a word or a phrase can shock quite deliberately, not malevolently, uh, but for dramatic effect, and I will go on doing that. I ha- you know, one has to be very careful on live TV because TV is in, in your home. Uh, you've not really made a, a choice about what you see there. Um, and I don't mean to offend, but I mean not to be p- pious all the time. That can be awfully tedious. And I, th- I think in both countries, America and England, there can be you know, just too much niceness sometimes. I mean, kids have got to get real. You know, the language they use in schools is appalling. They wouldn't use it at home. And they, um, one should have standards. But just occasionally, um, you know, people running to their dictionaries to look up the meaning of scatological. Uh, you know, <laughs> sometimes the, uh, the, the odd uh, bit of rudeness is, is quite useful and quite funny. And, you know... It makes people laugh, and I like making people laugh. Well, and one of the joys about, for instance, being at Disney, where I'm on stage, or or even a, a what do we call them, a celebration? I, I actually not crazy about that word. Um, is getting a reaction from audiences as myself, with particularly either as myself was reference to three PO because they know they almost know more about him than I do. Mm-hmm. They probably watch these movies more than I do. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a common language that, that we share, which is lovely. And when it, when it's all said and done, what do you value the most out of your experiences being in Star Wars? Gosh. <laughs> wow. It's kind a, of a broad question. A broad question. Um, I think there are a number of things I value. Probably it is having 3PO as my best friend. That comes across, obviously. You, you do... Portraying 3PO in so many different things in the Muppet Show, at the Oscars, yes. the radio dramas, yes. you obviously feel a certain ownership of that role. Don't tell George, he'd be furious. Of George, course. George owns it, uh, owns the image, if you like. But somehow, somehow maybe 3PO's soul belongs to me, I don't know. It's a nice thought. Not all the time. You did have a lot to do with, with the actual creation of the, yeah. the character who was supposed to sound like a used car salesman from New York. Yeah. I think the trouble was I couldn't do a used car salesman voice. George never mentioned that. He, you know, he kind of got busy, left it to me. So, yes, read all about it on the site. Um, I think you know, I will emphasize that, yes. I think the best thing to come out of it for me is 3PO. And everyone, I mean, you wanted to compliment uh, my childhood. The most important things to me were sports and Star Wars. And before Star Wars, I didn't, I didn't have any sort of pop culture thing that that I could bond with other children. And I mean, we had our comic books and whatnot. But Star Wars really brought a lot of kids together and helped us bond. And, and to this day, here we are, thirty years later. I have two boys, eight and four, and I bond with them over Star Wars. Mm. So if that's what you have done and what George has done and the whole Star Wars, the whole crazy thing, if it's done anything, it brings people together. Very much so. And sometimes in line, I see people standing in line for through whatever hours for an autograph. And I go up to them and say, by the time you get to me, I want you to have made friends with the person next to you in line. Do you know each other? No. Well, by the time you get there, you will. And I love that. And I think it, it goes beyond the movies. And, uh, you know, I'm not talking about extremist groups. 
who meet in the woods every Saturday and, you know, hey, put grease paint on. Um, I'm talking about people who share a love for something that's actually very innocent. Yes, Yes. And it's uh, Star Wars, where science meets imagination at the Chicago Museum of Science and Industry, running through January 6th. I look forward to seeing you. I, I have, we have a mutual friend who will be in town, and I hope to bring him with on Friday morning for the opening, Dan Madsen. How wonderful. Yes. Are you serious? Yes. Dan will be in town. He's wow, this is a genuine surprise. You've, you, you've, wow. This is like a, this is your life moment. Dan Madsen, who put on the first uh, Star Wars celebration in Denver, in I'm surprised the Ark didn't turn up with Noah because it. I'm I have seen it rain a lot, but never quite so, like, consistent. Yes. Oh, you know, and, and people who were out there listening now, who who were at celebration, it was called celebration because it was the only one like mm-hmm. Star Wars, uh, the original, and the people there were so patient and so. Uh, Devoted, and I have enormous affection for that occasion uh, and for those fans and for Dan, who soldiered on, just did it. He, the, he couldn't do anything about the weather. It made life very difficult. Uh, he was one of the best people ever to work for Lucasfilm, and he now does you know, other things, other projects with other movies. And I'm just thrilled he's going to be here. Yes. I didn't know. How come he didn't? How come he didn't? He never writes, he never emails. He's coming to the museum on Friday. This is very interesting for you people at home. I, I'd be very... Can you make sure you get there reasonably early in the yes, morning? Yes, yes, I'll Along do Along with anybody else. If you're listening to this, why don't you come on down? And I will be standing somewhere near my uh, costume, I would imagine, possibly doing some TV interviews, which is always crazy at these events because it's like doing an interview in a bus station. The noise is from... And I'm trying to think what I'm talking about yes. and whatever, you know. So. Yes. Uh, but it would be grand to see him. He yes. was a major part of the beginning of the fan club uh, for Star Wars. And uh, I, I, it's very important to remember that, that he is, you know, the bedrock of it. Well, thank you so much. You've been so generous with your time. It's been a thrill for me just to meet you, much less be able to talk to you for so long. You know, continued future success with Star well, you Wars just and everything me a else. So yes, in a very un-English way, I'm just going to say thank you very much for saying those nice things. You're very, very welcome. Appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, thank goodness you're here. Artu and I have been waiting to tell you all about Star Wars, where science meets imagination. And why not join us at the Museum of Science and Industry on our opening day, Friday, October 5th. Oh, my. Rebel Force Radio. Your source for the Force. All right. I think, Jim, the highlight of the whole time out there at C2E2, Anthony Daniels' incredible panel. (laughs) <laughs> it was incredible. And I and if you're thinking what I was thinking and 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 I have to confess I'm I'm putting it out there. I'm going to tell it like it is. I was not thrilled about going and sitting through Anthony Daniels' panel. I said, "Well, maybe we could just set up the recorder and and, and go do something else." You're like, "No, no, no, we got to do this." Because what I assumed it was going to be is what Anthony Daniels would later talk about. Which is, you know, two guys sitting at a table. One's Anthony Daniels. The other guy's an interviewer. All right, we're going to take a question here from the back. Uh, you uh, and But it was anything but that. It was one of the most lively, engaging, and hilarious celebrity panels at any convention I've ever seen. It was so good. Loaded with audience interaction. And Anthony really has a knack of walking through that crowd Working the camera the whole time he's doing it. Oh, yes. 
because they had a camera on him. So, you know, you're not craning your neck trying to see what's going on. They had a camera on him the whole time. So there's a big screen up on the stage. And Anthony was really working the camera very well. And he has this incredible knack for finding the true characters in the audience, the ones who have the ability to contribute laughs, information, and just good plain old conversation to this question and answer session that Anthony was doing. And uh, he was so engaging with the audience and the audience paid back in spades because that was, I would say, 50 percent of the entertainment was his interaction with the audience. The other 50 percent was just his personality and great stories because his sense of recall is so solid. He really takes you back to the set on Tunisia or Elstree Studios, wherever they were shooting Star Wars. And he has such a way of relating his emotions and feelings as these events, these classic cinematic events were happening. And he just brings it all right to you in a way that's so easy to understand. He doesn't add all this Hollywood BS to it. He really is very straightforward. And he talks about everyone from the biggest people on the set, like George Lucas, to people you've never heard of, like his stand-in as C-3PO. And he'll, he'll tell these these passionate stories about them as if they're all on the same level. Because when you think about it, they're all making these great contributions to the wars along the way. And uh, some people just don't get the spotlight shown on them in any way, shape or form. But Anthony is always really good about spreading the love for those who he believes really made impactful contributions to star Wars. Yeah. And you know, the uh, it's, it's hard to kind of paint this whole picture of this panel and to give you an idea, I mean, it was basically like a, a one-man show. He was performing. And at the same time, he was involving, you know, the, the, the audience members and running around there with a hand mic himself. He didn't have a runner going around and, you know, putting the mic in people's faces. He was doing it, and which added so much, um, I don't know if drama is the right word, but, you know, when... Anthony Daniels himself is standing right next to you with the putting the microphone in your face for the for the for the question. You know, folks, of course, got nervous. And then he made that part of the act and he just rolled with everything so well. There were times and I mentioned this to him that I was scratching my head saying, is this is this all planned or is this totally off the cuff? It was really just uh, uh, it was phenomenal. It was phenomenal. So um, we've got some highlights here for you. Um, this uh, question was about um, what it felt like to be back um, after all those years, uh, back making Star Wars again when the cameras rolled on the prequels. What was it like shooting in the 80s and then like 20 years later shooting again? How did, you, what, did, like, did, how did it feel? Was it very nostalgic? Interesting question. You surprised me. Hmm. <laughs> We could just laugh and smile at each other. Everybody could go away. It could be our private moment. What do you think? Shall we have a private moment here? Uh, you're with somebody. You're with him. He's taking the pictures. Hey, what am I into here? This is really weird. Okay. I... So what was, what was the... <laughs> easy, easy. Um, what was it like? What was the difference? I had two amazing pieces of nostalgia. Um, the first one was in Tunisia where... Um, on episode, whichever it was, two, I think, 
where there we are back at the homestead on Tatooine, and it was exactly the same location because they could tell from where the hole in the ground still was uh, how to align the whole set and so on. So it was actually as though I had never been away, and yet 20-something years had passed. And it was one of those real strange moments, and George and I were the only people who'd ever been on the original film and on the, on the prequel. And that was really quite, quite strange. I had a little soul mm, movement, but you know, it may have been the lunch, because, you know, food in Tunisia is awful. Um, never go. And they, the other one was actually in Australia on episode three, and that was in the Tonti, is it Tonti 4, the White Corridor? And there I walk in, and George is there. And again, we both like... Because we had been in the original in Elstree in England, and suddenly, all these years later, we're in the identical set around the world in, uh, in Australia. And so, yes, those moments were really quite spine-tingling. And it is amazing, because you, you will all know, because you read all this rubbish that's in magazines and things, that I didn't want to meet George in the first place to be uh, on a... Star Wars film. I thought it was going to be a silly thing. Even when we were shooting, we thought it was a silly thing. And here I am, 37 years later, in Chicago. Where did it all go wrong? <laughs> I don't think it went wrong for him at all. I mean, no. he's really managed to forge ahead an incredible career as 3PO and everything from films to radio to toys to commercials to you name it, whenever... 3PO is needed. Anthony Daniels is there. And Jason, you're right. That was such an engaging panel. Yeah. And and never again will I say, oh, gee, I, I don't know if I want to go to the Anthony Daniels panel. So without further ado, our interview with Anthony Daniels, which took place just uh, the day after his uh, his panel, we got a chance to catch up with Ant- or was it the same day? No, it was, it was the next day. It was the next day. That's right. Yeah, he was, he was coming off a, a great uh, show there on uh, Saturday. We understood that morning. We, we had we'd gotten the news that Anthony was well-rested and in a great mood, and so we felt pretty positive going into this interview, and the man did not let us down. Live at C2E2 in Chicago with the legendary Anthony Daniels, better known to Star Wars fans as C3PO, but really needs no introduction. Legendary, I kind of like that. A legend in my own lifetime. Living I, legend. Living legend. Yes, We're like, right, living legend. Uh, well, right. one day I'll be a dead legend. And, uh, <laughs> maybe dead legends are even better. But you know, it really struck me, we, we opened the new Star Tours ride at Disney yeah. uh, a few months ago back now. And I've realized that that show will be going on long after I'm dead. Because the previous one went on for 22 years, I think, before we changed it. And uh, 22 years from now, I'm going to be pretty old. And who knows if I make it that far. So in the future, you can still go to Disney and him. And you can watch the movies and hear my voice. And, you know, so this is this is immortality. In a Your legacy way. will my live legacy. on forever. Yes. Me and Jason feel like the Ewoks on Indoor. We should be... Bowing well, down well, to you. Well, I think I prefer well, you to the Ewoks. Well, good, <laughs> rather scary, scarily good. Yes. So Jason's got the Ewok size thing. Down. He's pretty I good, do, isn't he? I yeah, do. yeah. yeah so. yes. And he's kind of a very nice little, 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 little furry. Right, right. Look yeah. at his arms. I mean, yeah, very yeah, Ewok esque. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I can take the the Ewoks in small doses. I think. Anthony, we had the pleasure of catching your Q and A yesterday, which was just phenomenal. Truly, one of the best that we have ever seen. <laughs> Um, and normally, at least in the past, you've been on the moderator side of things. How long have you been doing this sort of 
one-man version? Is that something you just kind of came up with recently, or have you been doing uh, it, that for a while? Uh, it was almost 100% spontaneous because I walked in the day before and saw a long table with microphones on and chairs behind it. I thought, how boring is that? <laughs> how awful. I've always had a horror of people on stage behind a desk going, can I have the next question? <laughs> <laughs> and they've got their name on a piece of paper in front of them. And right. It's utterly, utterly boring. So I decided maybe there's another way of doing that. And I, I was relying totally on the goodwill and the humor of the audience. And I have to say the the brilliance of the technical crew. I said, I don't know what I'm going to do, but it might be something like this or it might be that. It might be nothing. I don't know until I get out there. Yeah. What's going to happen? And uh, yeah, we had a good time. People... Uh, People joined in. I, I also think people come to talk about the movies. They see, they see the screen. They see my performance on the screen. They don't ever get to jump through the screen or do anything themselves. So my thesis is that I want to include them as a part of the live action, if you like. And boy, I, I struck lucky, didn't you I? You struck gold with those <laughs> guys. Yeah, yeah Carl. You, in the palm of your hand. And I was scratching my head the entire time, like, is this, is this rehearsed or isn't it? Because it just... I was so making it up. You wouldn't. You you will not believe how much I was making it up. And I said you were kind of the Don Rickles of Star Wars. You were up there. <laughs> you've kind of given some people a, a hard time, but they loved every minute of it. You know, well, it's all I, done in good fun. Uh, I had trouble in the past with people not quite understanding my sense of humor because not only is it British, but it's particularly mean British. <laughs> but it is always. A, the British are, uh, are renowned for being very offensive to their friends uh, because we are very frightened of saying, you know, I really like you. You're a great person and I love sure. having you in my life. Instead, we say, you know, you're such a creep. And we, we just let each other have it. And I bring that sort of sense of humor to America. And if people don't get it, tough. They should just die. <laughs> well, we have a confession to make. Ah. When you uh, snuck up uh, behind the microphones and they had the lights down, yeah. Jason leaned over to me and he said, hey, let's start off a round of applause for Anthony. And so that's what oh, got it going. I and then he turned you, the lights yeah. on. Well, I knew... I knew somebody was going to notice me at some point, right, do you right. see? So I was, uh, thank you very much. Oh, sure. okay. You were a part, part of, of the show. Yeah. Isn't we that played great? right into your uh, You really your did. Right you really did. Yeah. So is this a formula that you are no, encouraged I've never, by? No, I've never done it before like that. Or uh, I, I seem to have an ability to make lemonade out of, you know, mm. you give me a... You give me something to play with, I'll make something up. Mm -hmm. Do you prefer something like that or something more structured I like the in concert? Oh, well, totally different. Right. The Star Wars in concert is the best job I ever had in my life, I think. It's, I, I absolutely 100% adore it. I love the fact that nearly three-quarters of a million people have seen it in America alone. We're about to perform it in uh, Japan in August. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, oh, I'm not sure they've announced it yet. Uh, I think uh, you did yesterday, <laughs> yes. sir. Ah, well. According to Twitter, it was... Yeah. <laughs> oh, there you go. Um, so, uh, middle of August, uh, we'll be doing seven shows, I think, in Tokyo and two in Osaka at the moment. I don't know. Uh, I love it. I was doing it this morning in the gym at the hotel <laughs> about four o'clock uh, in the morning by myself saying, um, as the forces of evil emerge from the shadows, the once glorious republic was torn apart. The Clone Wars had begun. 
and you see, I can do it in the gym because I've got to keep these words fresh in my brain. Right. Otherwise, I'm going to forget them. But of course, I can't do it if somebody walks in and I'm always looking in the mirror to see. <laughs> they wonder what on earth. Hey, and I'm not going to give a free performance. You know right. what I mean? Right. Yeah, gotta... go get your money if you want the rest <laughs> of the show. You're a professional, Dan. But I, I don't have autocue. I'm doing it all from memory with a lot of stuff going on around me in the concert. You know, not only 86 musicians and a 100-piece choir, but the audience waving lightsabers oh and gosh. waving and shouting out. And my close-up camera is about 200 yards away, so I have to concentrate and know the words very much. It's the best thing I've ever done, and it genuinely, genuinely opened my eyes to the story of Star Wars. I'd never... I'd always thought it was okay, but I'd never had such respect for it. Mm-hmm. Now I get it. I think it, it does help that I tell the story the right way around, beginning yeah. to end. Mm-hmm. I don't know, call me old-fashioned. But mm-hmm. George chose to do it a different direction. Because well, I've seen it two times, and what struck me was it reminded me of 3PO and Return of the Jedi in the Ewok village telling the story. Yes, it's such a it is way. weird. And I, I don't, it just happened that way. You know, yeah. they, they asked me if I would... I, I didn't say yes originally because the original script was slightly... We've changed it a bit. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, it's more fluid. It's easier to speak. It's, it's not poetic, but it, there is a rhythm to it. Because mm-hmm. I'm hopeless at making the first ideas, but I can, I can then mm, edit things a bit. It's part of my brain. Will right. this be your first return to Japan since Star Wars Celebration Japan? Yes, I believe mm-hmm. it will, yeah. I'm, I've been to Japan many times and had some extraordinary and wonderful experiences there. And I am very excited to think how the Japanese fans will will respond. Now, one of the difficulties in Japan is occasionally at a show they can be very respectful. They, uh, they think they have to sit there on yeah. their hands... Uh, listening to the music and at the end go, yeah! <laughs> well, there are times within, as you know, Star Wars in concert, that I'm very much looking for people to react. And mm-hmm. um, right, of course, the beginning when I introduced C-3PO as a, as a character, they do. But w- there are two things that really get people reacting. And one is uh, Yoda, who is a thing, you know. He mm-hmm. was a, originally a puppet, now he's uh, animation. And the other thing is the... Millennium Falcon. People really relate to the Millennium Falcon as as one of those iconic right. early films. It's almost a character in the film. Almost a character, yeah. yeah. Well, people, and of course, John Williams' people music. People their cars to, sometimes. You know. Yeah, this is true. Yeah. Uh, John Williams' music, of course, is a total character. With a, a friend rem- of ours refers to John Williams' soundtrack as the oxygen of Star Wars. That's very good, because yeah, like remember, that. I've seen these films without John's music. <laughs> right. Um, let's move on from that. Uh, <laughs> it adds that much, he, though. Oh, it, but beyond belief. Yeah. It's a total character in its own right. And I'm, I am thrilled that, uh, because of the concerts, because of the publicity and interviews I've done for it, very much encouraging, particularly young people, to go to more concerts, classical music, because they don't really realize that it's classical music. But it really is. It's written very much in the framework of the classics. And it's highly acceptable and easy to digest, but not simple. I enjoyed it every, every night I've done. I've done 140 performances every night. I have my favorites, um, believe it or not, from episode one. Uh, the, <laughs> don't say that very often. Um, the entry into the, uh, the big race thing, into the arena of that huge march. Very, yes. very exciting. And then some of the beautiful love tunes and so on. Very moving. And to have my words cue the next big bubble is <laughs> such a feeling of power. You love it. Yeah, I love it. And you love the big screen behind you? I love the big screen behind me. Um, 
uh, because it allows, allows everybody within the huge uh, auditorium to, to mm-hmm. actually see. Everybody has a good seat, yeah. We did notice in your panel yesterday that you were working the camera probably more proficiently than anyone I've ever seen in that sort of situation. It's like they, people just sort of ignore it, but you really brought it in to, as part of your show. Well, when you have, uh, technically, if you have a big screen there, mm-hmm. people generally are going to watch the screen because it's more luminous uh, than, than real life. Mm-hmm. Um, so they will look at that, and if you know that you are on camera, mm-hmm. if you look straight down the lens, then in fact you're looking at everybody in the room, very, very sincerely and lovingly, <laughs> and, and just coming in for that wonderful... <laughs> Whereas if you are constantly looking to... You are ignoring mm-hmm. a lot of people who don't feel featured. Mm-hmm. So thank you for noticing. Yes, Absolutely. it's... it's um, in a way, the camera like that can be your, your, your best friend on stage. Mm-hmm. It's the person you're working with. And the cameraman was really good. Did you notice? Yes. He had no idea what I was going to do. <laughs> and he was... In fact, I woke up this morning and thought, I should have played a trick where I made him go right round and <laughs> twisted himself in knots. He was terrific, as were the sound yeah. guys and the lighting guys. Sure. Yep. So I was... Part of my brain... They would say as an actor, you know, 80% of you should be thinking about what you're doing. Mm-hmm. The other 20% is watching the scenery, the lighting, whatever. So I was doing a bit of that. Yeah. I couldn't do it. It's, it's interesting. It's quite a brain teaser. Mm-hmm. But it depends on the goodwill of the audience. And there was goodwill in huge bucket loads. Oh, yeah. So we, I'm glad you were there. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, it, was, yeah. it was wonderful. And we were so happy to be there. And you, you bring up the audience and the fans, especially fans in Japan. Have you noticed a change in fandom over the years, especially with the return of Star Wars, with the prequels? The, uh, what was very clear to me from the concerts is, because I can see the first number of rows, and the age range is extraordinary, from 3 to 93. Mm. The thrills worry me, because I think, oh, they're going to... They sit there absolutely spellbound as do the older children, as do the parents, as do the grandparents. And for the older families, they're reliving and sharing this. And that's what I've got from doing the concerts, that it's George somehow, somehow created an amazing, as he's called it, a sandbox, but a sharing thing that somehow people feel able to share with their children because there are many, many good things within the story of Star Wars. There are bits that are not for me, you know, there are things in the films that are not for me, but in general what an amazing artistic phenomenon in our lifetime. And I've had, I've had discussions with people who look down and say, oh, it's pop culture. I had a major cleaning session of a I won't say which paper it was, but um, <laughs> I did an interview in North America. Um, yes, I'm, uh, I'm the music correspondent for the Sergeant Sars paper, and I've been stuck with this interview so we better begin well, from that moment, he was dead. He was chicken feed. I mean, I so clean him because I said, do I gather that you look down on this concert music because it was written for a movie? Yes. Well, you know, well, I cleaned him so badly. I, I was very polite. I will say that he not only sent me an immediate email of apology, and, but he wrote the most beautiful article about the dissemination, the sharing of classical music, thereby keeping concert halls open, thereby keeping orchestras together and encouraging people because he was so snotty and I says attitudes like yours that close stop people going to concerts and therefore classical music will die right so why am I telling you this well I actually worked for a symphony orchestra at the time I worked for a symphony orchestra for about five years as a marketing director and we were thrilled 
thrilled when we saw Star Wars in concert because it was encouraging folks to go back to yes. the to the concert hall. And particularly because the camera work, you know, we're talking about the camera work at my little tour. Mm -hmm. The camera work um, was exquisite because it showed people make and more than you would see in the normal TV of a concert because there you were live seeing music played in sync to film footage but also then when we came out of film you, you zoomed in on the the oboe the piccolo yes. the triangle became a big star because I would stand <laughs> on stage when I wasn't talking and I think oh you know if we move that camera there if I got a handheld to come around and I got the the triangle to look up stage and just frame her like this. <laughs> triangle became a huge star, um, yeah. and we made the we made the individual instruments stars. Mm -hmm. I, I learned where not to stand backstage. I mean, boy, some of the noise these things oh, made. Yeah. Very a lot of plexiglass screens there to protect the ears. You know, yeah. I'm here, going on about it too much. I want more and more people to see Star Wars in concert because. People often would be in tears. They found it so eloquent. Yes. And yes. it tells the story for people who haven't seen it mm. in film sections that are woven out of all six movies. So you have the whole canon of films to draw on, whether you're talking ab about the droids, about heroes, about villains, about chases, about excitement, about battles. It's all there beautifully woven by Lucasfilm yeah. into these separate scenes. Anthony, I've always wanted to ask you about Empire Strikes Back, and in particular, the timing and the chemistry that you... I mean, everybody talks about you and R2 and having so much great chemistry, but I think, maybe second to that, your chemistry with Harrison Ford and <laughs> Carrie Fisher in Empire. Yeah. Is, did you work a lot of that out, the three of you? Oh, God, no. Or, you know, uh, Peter, or look, was Irvin Kershaw? Uh, oh, really? adora totally adorable. Uh, you're implying that we ever rehearsed scenes in Star Wars? <laughs> you talk about my show yesterday being improvised? Yeah. Uh, rehearsals tend to uh, take time and therefore cost money and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. There was, because now I was so into the character of 3PO and, you know, really have been since day one, strangely. Um, and Harrison was into his personality and Caro's character. The natural dynamics, along with the script, mm -hmm. because, you see, to begin with, I was kind of upset when I read the script to find that R2 had gone off on another adventure, etc. And then, of course, 3PO being... It's rather like this tape recorder. It's a tape recorder. It's the same wherever it is. It depends what somebody says into the microphone. With 3PO, he's always going to be a machine, but where he is put in a new situation, it will bring out other aspects of him. Right, right. So to be faced, for instance, with Han Solo, who, yes, is a, is a human being and therefore should be respected, but frankly, his, his manners are so appalling that he, <laughs> he doesn't deserve the respect, you know, etc. Right. Whereas right. the Princess Leia, obviously, is a... Is a somebody who should be revered and so so that would bring out 3PO's natural whatever and it worked very well as a dynamic and of course going into the the next film where Han Solo now become utterly <laughs> despising of 3PO but there is one people say what is it what is your pr proudest moment in all the Star Wars movies and it is a scene in when we've just been made a part of the tribe. Yes. And 3PO is talking to one of the Ewoks. Uh, they all look alike to me. You know what? I'm fur is fur. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and they smell the same. I'm bad, but they all smell Do the same. Do they smell bad? Oh, please. <laughs> On the yeah. outside. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> outside and inside. Oh. Uh, there is a scene where Han Solo interrupts 3PO when he's talking very quietly. And he taps him on the shoulder. And yeah. 3PO looks around and, you know obviously feels this is slightly rude uh, and yes he will ask this and he's about to and Solo does it again and 3PO turns turns back again and then Solo does it for the third time 
totally going over the bounds of <laughs> bad manners. And I did trick that shot because uh, I can't really move my head very much other than about uh, mm-hmm. 60 degrees from <laughs> the center left to right. So I tricked my shoulders already facing solo. And I did such a fast whip round. <laughs> and if you look at 3PO, it expresses total hate and contempt for it this does. utterly, utterly dreadful human. <laughs> and the face doesn't change. Right. But just the mimetic, uh, what I did, yeah. worked so well that I really like that. And even Harrison, I think, was like, oh, <laughs> I went too far. <laughs> but of course, you have a history in mind. And so obviously, that, that was one of the reasons. Yeah. yeah. And you do, you know, I had to work out technique. You don't want to need, you, it's always boring when actors tell you how difficult things were. You know, it's what they get paid to do. Just do it. <laughs> uh, but, but with 3P, I did actually have to work out some physical things that would work on film. Mm-hmm. And then I can be proud of them and, and laugh. You know, it's hardly world changing. That's I what I did. A question about the 3PO costume. Yeah. Um, obviously, cool. we've heard about you being occasionally claustrophobic in there. Only, only twice. I talked about it yesterday. Yes, and you did. That was scary. And I think mostly it was just missing a breath and mm. panicking because, you know, the costume pushes into my yes. diaphragm. And if you can't, you know, can't it's like being waterboarded, frankly. Mm. It was, it, it's scary. Yes. Really. You know, I, I experienced a similar situation on a roller coaster. You know, they have those big support harnesses that come down yes. over you. You can't, I couldn't expand my lungs at all. And, you know, about a minute into the ride, I was like, get me off this thing. So I can totally relate with there that. And uh, the other question I have about the costume. Now, this is just a total detail-oriented question. In Empire and in the original Star Wars, 3PO's middle section with the wires exposed was just a jumbled mess. But by the time of Return of the Jedi, it, all the wires were straight and organized and real neat looking. Why, why was that decision made to change the aesthetics of those wires? Why do you mean decision? <laughs> it just happened. It's all, yeah. It just happened. I, I know it's quite funny. I was doing a commercial for something a couple of years ago in a huge arena in, in L.A. And we had a lot of extras. I think it was Orange Mobile or something. And on one day, this this guy, one of the extras came up and said, excuse me, sir, um, yesterday your wires were like this and they should be like that. And I'm looking for security because this guy, this guy is so weird. No, they were a jumble of men and they were always falling out and they would just uh, push them back in. Right. Sorry, I shouldn't be telling you all this. Um and indeed, on the original, you'll see there's some white. There's two white ones that come up the front. We're actually cheap curtain track, you know, expanding metal covered in plastic. And we got bored with it; kept falling off, so mm-hmm. we got rid of them in the end. But it's like you would uh, pimp your ride, you know. Three right. people can get, you know, bits fall off, bits get added. Sorry, sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's cool. Right. That's cool. But uh, yeah, just, I can I was, do the BS if I want to. Well, but occasionally, I just go, "No, it was a mistake, or it fell off, or we forgot." <laughs> we'll accept your BS in okay. any way you want to serve right. it up on right. a silver platter if you'd like oh, to, okay. sir. We don't know anything different. <laughs> we don't. We By don't. the time you got to the prequels, in Episode One, and there was a a, a style of Japanese puppetry that was uh, to yes, be done. like Bunraku. Right. Now, I didn't do that. I was on the set sometimes doing the voice, but mm-hmm. it was. Uh, it is Bunraka, where you have a puppeteer on stage for those who are, who's dressed in black. And I was just making sure I got the right word. And uh, <laughs> Bunraka, not black. And uh, on the stage, you accept that that person is not there. It's uh-huh. a, uh, a theatrical slight. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, here you shoot the scene with and without, and then in Photoshop. Mm-hmm. And on 
Act Two, Episode Two. I take you know I, I really want to do the puppetry because um, uh, you know I, I can be the char- I, I right. can be the character. So I did, and it was terrifying because the puppet weighed pretty much as much as I did, mm-hmm. and we went all through all the the scenes and so on. Oh, and there's one scene, and I have talked about this, where, which really makes me sad because it was one of the few, I feel, one of the few calm, slightly wistful, sad, emotive moments of any of the Star Wars story. And it was where Padme comes into the, the garage at night and, and there's 3PO sitting there, the puppet. So I'm kneeling on the floor behind, and this is in Australia now. And she said, oh, can't you sleep, 3PO? And she goes, oh, um, no, I, I don't sleep. I, I sometimes switch off for a while, but are you happy, 3PO? Well, I, I'm not unhappy. I mean, the people here are, are very kind. It's just rather difficult being like this. Like what? Well, naked, if you'll pardon the expression. And then 3PO went on to explain how the boy had, uh, hadn't had time to finish his coverings before he had to run away. And I'm sure he'll come back one day. And you saw this oh huge pathos of this character who's protocol and etiquette and has been naked serving the canopies all this time, you know. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, in true uh, Lucas magic, Padme, standing in the middle of the garage, goes, Oh, but 3PL, there's a box of coverings right here. At her feet. Uh-huh. Oh, mm. my, I never noticed. <laughs> Please. <laughs> and the scene ended with, with her offering up a chest piece to, yeah. to the puppet. Went away, came back, and there she is. Thanks to Don oh. Bees and the magic of fridge magnets sticking the face. <laughs> I was wearing the, only the eyes, and she managed to get the face over the eyes. Right. And, and um, <laughs> that kid is yelling C3PO rocks. Probably about eight years old. <laughs> and yeah. uh, then George, um, and it was magic. Everybody on the homestead was really happy. Uh, Owen and uh, Aunt Baru, uh, Baru mm. and all that kind of thing. And 3PO was just thrilled. And then Jordan, you know, there was no time for this stuff. Oh. And it just got cut. And then I had to go back and do all the scenes that I'd done as the puppet in the, in the rusty costume. But the, the really scary bit was in the homestead where I introduced everybody. And we did six takes. And the six perfectly. And even, uh, even though I'd said the floor is very rocky and a little scary because I couldn't see the floor. Mm-hmm. Of feeling my way and of course on the sixth take which was his close up my foot or his foot hit a rock and I went from vertical to horizontal on your back on my side on I went completely side. on my side and there was this terrible silence mm-hmm. and then people began to run and Don Bees was there who was looking after me and he got me out of the the harness really quick and I actually, I literally wiggled my toes because oh shit I've because I crashed onto rock. Yeah. I couldn't save myself at all. Oh, right. And he got me out and I stood up and I was shocked, actually. Mm-hmm. And when I looked down, I completely smashed the whole left side of, uh, from the waist down of the puppet. Mm-hmm. And there was only one in the world. And I was shocked at myself and then shocked at having damaged this remarkably valuable prop and also shocked at having really hurt my friend. Oh, and no. I, fe- I felt really, really bad. And then Don went, hey, it's a close-up. And he cut the whole of the costume off at the waist. And for that shot, actually, it was a heck of a lot easier because I only yeah. had to yeah. reel the top yeah. off. There's a method to your madness it was, there. And <laughs> I, felt, I did feel bad. They, they since repaired it. Uh, but it never got used because we went to the rusty one, yeah. which I have to tell you is the gold one painted by Justin Dix to look rusty. Mm. 
so it's been a con- I've done 3PO in every which way you can with my head on backwards my hand up through his body mm-hmm. uh, pulling him on strings doing so all sorts of puppetry so the Bunraku side actually was quite interesting yeah and the difference between shooting the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy in terms of the freedom that you would have to make mistakes like that or have problems because they could be fixed in post. Does yeah. that change the way you, you're you working on the set? Are you thinking, well, they can always fix this with CG No, because I, I actually like to get it right on the set, frankly. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not into all this post-production stuff. It's, it's a different atmosphere. But, uh, yeah, you know, there were times where... It was amusing because R2 was pretty much always digital. And, uh, you know, there was a point where Don, George said to Don B, um, you know, uh, take R2 out of the ship because we'll do it digitally. And Don said, why? Yeah. And he said, well, he's too, too high in the ship. Mm-hmm. And Don said, well, I could drop him down a bit. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. <laughs> George's first reaction is to, uh, is to do it digitally. Yes. And of course, my very last scene I've told before is... Um, walking along when they just come back from an event and three people talking and, and George said yeah R2's here and so for their joke at the rehearsal on a blue carpet against a blue screen I picked up the hose of a vacuum cleaner one of those little <laughs> global uh-huh, uh, yeah. dome back and hauled that along talking <laughs> talking to that as, and the crew liked it George didn't keep it in but it was it was fun it was nice to have a light moment you told such a great story yesterday in the panel I was hoping you would tell it again uh but about when you were shooting Return of the Jedi. Oh, yeah. And, and George as a... Well, that, that, yeah. that's it, because he'd, he'd been so appalling at trying to make up for the fact that R2 didn't make any sounds, which was a total surprise to me that I was having one-sided conversations uh, at the beginning, because um, the script, never, nobody ever told me R2 wouldn't be speaking. Mm. And so I tried to get him to, to do it, and he, he was so bad. He was really terrible. And uh, it was on that scene to Jabba's Palace, which is, that's why it's my favorite scene. Apart from the fact that it's such a lonely, these two little figures going off to their doom, you know, Mm. it's quite moving. Um, But uh, there I was walking by myself, rehearsing the lines about, Lando Calrissian never returned from this awful... And beep, 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 beep. And there is George running along on his, on, squatting on his haunches, really. So happy, almost like a kid in, in a playground, you know. And, of course, it wasn't, you know, months after the movies that Ben Burt put all those sounds back on. Mm-hmm. It's a great creation, R2-D2, because part of it, it's Ben's voice, yes. uh, Ben's whistles, Ben's little kid, not a little kid anymore, go cooing into it. Um, <laughs> well, what also you know makes uh, the character of R two work is the way you would react to him, because nobody understands the beeping and the booping, but your reactions, and you're not even necessarily translating those beeps and boops. You're just reacting, and we fill in the blanks, so we we follow the conversation it, between in the my two head. Of you. Um, sometimes I get scripts which are so uh, wrong in the way they translate or get me to imply what he's saying. You know, there is a skill. It's a, a stupid skill. It's not useful for anything. But in, in letting the audience know what R2 said without actually being absolutely clinically um, precise about it, you know, uh, I fiddle with scripts a lot. Yeah, we, we understand that. Mm-hmm. We've heard um, when you sit down and go over Clone Wars scripts with Dave Filoni, you would change around some of the Who's, who told you this? dialogue. Well, we've actually seen this on um, Clone Wars DVDs. Really? Behind the scenes, Blu-rays. Oh, that's terrible. Actually, I'm not ashamed. I do it with everybody. 
I did one I won't tell you who it was where I completely rewrote the commercial because their idea was so bad that I just uh, I can't be bothered to why don't I just redo it but you take ownership of the character of 3 yeah and I have to because uh, somebody sometimes I'm out on a limb by myself and I'm the only person as it were from Lucasfilm I don't work for mm. Lucasfilm but I feel responsible mm-hmm. you know those George hones those films miraculously they're polished they're, you know whether you like bits or not they are highly polished highly refined and therefore people trust them and love them but you have some schmuck company come along and kind of get it wrong you risk messing up people's image of you know be like seeing uh, I don't know you can work it out well I mean it's just a <laughs> testament to how the character is yeah. your character I care, I care about the character and I care about uh, maintaining the as Lucasfilm does but sometimes you know there's nobody there to say that's not right right and of course you have played 3PO in numerous projects outside of Star Wars huge numbers more, more than show. I can think uh, you've been on the Academy Awards as yeah. 3PO Sesame somebody had a picture Sesame of me on Street. Sesame Street yes. uh, here which I loved I wanted them to offer me a permit you, you did some songs on Sesame Street I did and you I can't danced sing. on the Muppet Show I, did, I really did wow it's not amazing <laughs> does anything stand out as like your favorite all time well, that, that was one of them and I love the scene in uh, one of the shows in Sesame Street I did was where R2 came up and said you know beep 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 beep, beep. what you've, you've got a new girlfriend <laughs> well what is she like beep, beep. she's very short <laughs> and uh, whatever and very quiet oh, yes I would like to meet her absolutely <laughs> so we go out in the street and I go R2 that's a fire hydrant. <laughs> <laughs> so R2 in love with a fire hydrant is. And in fact, I remember, the curious thing, as I arrived today, there was a big red fire hydrant outside the doors of this building. And I walk in, and I, I think about it. And then I walk over to stand there and say, the guy said, excuse me, my wife works on Sesame Street. She just sent me a picture of you on Sesame Street. <laughs> Weird. And yesterday in the show, yeah. think of this. What was my favorite film I told you? Favorite film? I out said of, my favorite film. No, no. Do you remember what I said? Pretty it was, Woman. What was on TV last night? Pretty Woman. <laughs> How scary is that? <laughs> that is scary. I was that watching, scary. and it, you know, it really is a good film. It is, yeah. Whatever anybody thinks for me, it's a great film and you yeah, know, great performances. Uh, but I did also counter by saying Mad Max and my favorite. I really yeah. love Mad Max movies. Huh. Uh, <laughs> really, two ends of the. They uh, really are, but they, you know, I guess that's the way, way I am. Right. So. But right. Julia Roberts was just gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. An yeah. event you did outside of Star Wars. Uh, came to my attention a couple of years ago. Someone sent me a picture of you and Robin Williams. You were dressed as 3PO. Wow. You were with Robin Williams. Uh, hands across the world. Yes. That was the only time I met Robin Williams. He is hilarious. Mm-hmm. You know, if you could put him in boxes and sell him, you, you could invigorate the nation. Magical. He cannot stop himself. He's got such intelligence, such wit, enormous humor, brilliant timing. Yeah, I did that. Yeah. And also, um, to refer to your panel yesterday, you talked about how you saw the Ralph McQuarrie concept art for 3PO. Yes. And that, that spoke volumes to you when you sto- stared into that character's I eyes. Kinda, I think one of the, looking at it, because there's a toy you can now buy with his original concept art mm-hmm. on it, and I think it was the kind of bleak, forlorn, rather lost quality. Um, almost like a puppy might look at you um, from a, in a dog's home, in a dog pound, you know, and you want to take it home. There was something about three Ralph McQuarrie's three PO face. I can't. It just spoke to me, and I can't explain why. Mm-hmm. And maybe I, I don't need to. It just did. And forever after, and literally, I said to him years later, you know, 
this is all your fault. <laughs> and he kind of looked at me and then he got it. And uh, of course, he died a few, a few weeks ago this now. And I hope he was proud of his artwork. Because, you know, he came from a very techno background mm. in Boeing, I think, corporation aircraft. And yet he could create absolute icons. And uh, so his name lives forever. You know, that's a funny thing about show business. Mm-hmm. You mentioned on occasion there would be matte artists out there on the set with you while they were painting, you were acting, while they'd be they, painting on the glass. Did they, Ralph ever make those trips? No, I did see him. Uh, I saw him in this. No, what they would do, they would have the, the mad artist come in and he would be painting the glass black, which you weren't going to expose to light. But back in the studio, you would reverse it, so you paint the other bit black, and you uncover the... And that's what the painting went on. And it was magical. You know, people who paint things that you believe, very clever. I don't have those kind of skills, so I I can admire them. The crew on Star Wars, I I used to... They used to make me... I used to make them laugh, because I was always going around touching things and tapping things, because they weren't... They looked real, and they weren't. And to me, that was magic. And one of the things... I don't know. A computer, it's all very clever, but it's, once you're good with a computer, you can do it. Mm-hmm. But with a paintbrush to make something look metal or round or, you know, the, the, like the first Millennium Falcon, we only had half of one, but somebody mm-hmm. painted in perspective the other half. I think that's really clever. Yeah, it is. It is. There's a, a technical skill that... And hopefully, you see, the good thing about, you know, back to John's music is it, that keeps classic music and players alive and... And, and composers also. Um, films are very good at keeping sculptors and painters and uh, carvers and metal workers and leather workers. Uh, you know, some of the leather work. And, and people uh, like Trisha Bigger, you know, who designed this outrageously wonderful costumes for uh, the prequels. I think it's hugely sad nobody ever gave her an Oscar. And I think a lot of that's to do with the politics of, mm. you know... Uh, genre films, blockbusters, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, films are very important as a social medium. Now, of course, I'm involved very much in um, in the games industry because I teach at Carnegie Mellon Entertainment Technology Center in Pittsburgh, and I go two or three times a year to tutor the students, the postgraduate really? computer students, in their projects. Very much to do with the games industry, but also with location-based entertainment like Disney or whatever. And this, they end up in jobs like that. But a lot of it's my ability to do that is, is stuff that I gleaned from all these years of being on, on the Star Wars sets. Because, you know, they were major, major pieces of industrial mm-hmm. fineness. Bad word. Well, now that you're acting in front of blue screen a lot of times now, do, do you feel something is lost in the art? Yeah, my first job, remember, was on radio. I won a BBC Drama Award and spent six months doing um, radio plays because we got a big history of that in England still to this day. Now, on radio, you don't you don't have scenery. You just got a script. You haven't learned the words. You know you know them, and you're looking hopefully at other actors. Mm-hmm. You are looking at other mm-hmm. actors because always remembering that your mouth is pointing at, pointing at the microphone, right. but. It's in your. It's got to be in your head, and I think that stood me in very good stead. Not only for, for instance, working with R two and all the stuff that wasn't there, uh, but also um, for creating the scenery and just believing mm-hmm. in what you're seeing, and then the audience will believe you. Blue screen isn't as much fun, right? You know, to walk in on day on a Monday and actually walk into the Death Star. You know, we're in this huge hangar here for this exhibition, but 
the, the studio would be about uh, this height and so on. And it was all the Death Star. And you, you, you didn't have to act. You believed. Maybe you have to put a little more energy into believing where you are. But once you're into... I mean, I did laugh when I was flying a spaceship of some kind with Natalie Portman. And we, ju- we just had a, a very sexy space chair each. And we had a <laughs> kind of joystick each. And that was it. And we're just in a green world. And, of course, later on... You, you know, we, and there's a sandbag holding the joystick on the floor, <laughs> and I'm doing driving acting. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then later you see the film, and you go, wow, you know, that's, yeah. I didn't realize we were there. Yeah, right. right. Um, it's not as much fun, but it's much cheaper for, for them to shoot that way. Yeah. But that's not the first time that C- C-3PO piloted. There are shots in A New Hope where C-3PO is actually oh, driving, driving the land. Driving the car, and we yeah. shot against a moving plate. Uh, it's quite funny, because when you see the footage, you know, suddenly the plate ends with this sort of markers, the film yes, markers. It's right. like, oh, well, it wasn't, it wasn't real, <laughs> was it? Um, yes, he's, um, he has got all sorts of, of skills. Um, and, of course, in Star Tours, the wonderful Disney thing, he's now the pilot, and there's one one moment that does worry me where he we go into a pod race and he says I've always wanted to do this I think I said you know I was a little, a little worried about this line and, and then we decided it was his secret life he's got a whole bunch of secrets that he, <laughs> right. he's never been quite able to, to talk about and uh, what's next for 3PO recently you just tweeted uh, you've done some voice work for Star Wars Detours I may have to kill you now. <laughs> oh, no. Hey. What do you know about Star Wars Detours? What's that? Very little. What we know about it is that um, the guys from Robot Chicken are producing it, Seth Green and Matt Senreich and their crew. And um, it's going to be a comedy, but we don't know targeting what age group. It, 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 there's a lot of mystery behind it. We have to wipe this sequence. <laughs> okay. Um, th- they will find you and they will kill you. Uh, they've I've been heard. looking for me for years, actually. <laughs> okay. uh, as well as uh, I can neither confirm nor deny. Um, but I was uh, also just did yet another uh, sequence of stuff for a w- one-armed bandit. I probably don't call them that anymore. A, for Las Vegas. So yes. expect to go Slot and play machine. that game. I Last year I put a dollar in the Star Wars machine, whatever it is. Um, what do you call them? Slot, slot, slot machine. Slot machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the lights went on. They twinkled a bit. I had no idea what was going on. And they took my dollar. I was very, very upset. <laughs> uh, Gambling the, has a tendency to do that. So, I, so I'm not a gambler. So that, that, was, uh, that was last week. And uh, the next thing, as far as I can remember, is uh, now going to Tokyo. Oh, and um, possibly Celebration uh, 37, whichever number we're <laughs> at. Are you going to be there? I will be there at okay. Celebration. If they go up to 37, I'll be at all. Oh, okay. Um, so you may possibly see me there if I can get back from Japan in time. I am going on personal reasons to Australia and New Zealand later in the year. So that takes me up to Christmas pretty much. Then I may lay down, you know, it's like... And a new Lego special, maybe, right? Oh, the Lego specials. Wonder, <laughs> I'd forgotten about that. <laughs> that I love doing those. Because the whole Star Wars thing is so loved now that you can afford to poke fun, a bit, mm-hmm. poke fun at it in a, in a nice way, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, but to take the Mickey, not, not rudely, but um, very witty. Um, uh, 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 Michael Price from... Um, Simpsons. Simpsons. Yes. Just gorgeous. I spoke to him the other day because uh, they said, I'm in London doing it, whatever. And say, well, here in the studio, we have, you know, Michael Price. And then eventually I go, Michael Price, did you, you, you wrote this? Yeah. And I go, you're right. 
they're brilliant. <laughs> I did a whole thing because they are. Now, there's, there's one script I don't change. Oh, wow. oh, totally. Okay, okay. Absolutely well, not. You know what? Uh, we know Michael. We'll, we'll share that little bit oh, of info do, with do. him. He'll be it's, touched. Um, it was really nice to meet him over, over the air. Um, I'm getting the, uh, the, the wind-up yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah, we have been yep. too. So we're going to wrap it up. But Anthony We Daniels, could talk forever. I've, yeah. Yeah, I've had fun. Oh, that's fantastic. Okay. I, I'm touching. And, and we, we do call you like Anthony, not yes. Anthony. I know. I've got In used Chicago, to, they'll call you I, Anthony. Anthony. <laughs> I've got used to it. I mean, just as long as people are still uh, notice I'm around, it's nice, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And, and people call you Tony? Sometimes, yeah. Does yeah. anyone ever call you just Tone? Uh, yes. Really? <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I got a particularly a brilliant lawyer friend. Tones, she called me. And Tones. I think Tones. it's um, it's just nice to be it's musical. It's uh, yeah. Tones. It's uh, it's nice to be um, just taken notice of. You know. So. Well, Tones. <laughs> it was a pleasure. <laughs> Thank, Thank you so much I for joining us on the Force Day. Okay. Goodbye. <laughs>